Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Let's talk about leadership training. Maybe you've gotten some, or maybe you've been in the position of deciding who should get it. There are norms around it. Typically, organizations give leadership training either to very senior people or to those they've identified by conventional metrics as future senior people. My guests today, however, think that might be the wrong way to do things. Their names are Navio Kwok and Muni Shen. Navio is Vice President of Research and Marketing at a company called Kilbert Leadership Advisors, and Winnie's an Associate Professor at the Schulich School at York University. I saw their views on leadership training in a piece in the Harvard Business Review, and I found them really interesting. What they think is that the norms around choosing who to train are not serving anyone. They're not serving individuals, but they're not serving organizations either, since you're not making full use of people's skills and you are creating resentments that ultimately are going to have a negative impact on an organization's performance. I had a really interesting conversation with them, and it's really worth listening to because you may be deciding, you know, who should get the training or whether you need the training. And if you think about what they say, perhaps the metrics we use to make those decisions do need to change. Please stay with us. Organizations getting leadership training to the right people? My guests today have looked into this issue and think there may be some room to rethink the normal practices. Navio Kwok is Vice President of Research and Marketing at Kilbury, and Winnie Shen is an Associate Professor of Organization Studies at the Schulich School of Business at York University, and they join me now. Well, thank you both for being here. Thanks so much, Linda. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. You know, I have a lot to ask you about, but I always like to ask my guests about their own backgrounds first, so we kind of know how you got to do what you're doing. I'll start with you, Winnie. Yeah, so I am an industrial organizational psychologist who now works as a professor in a business school. Um, So I've always been fascinated with understanding how things work. And then in terms of my personal story, um, I've always also been fascinated about leadership um, with doing some work, for example, as um, a student government leader during university. And that's really piqued my interest in terms of what makes good leaders? How can we continue on developing our personal leadership journeys? And so that's definitely carried over into my research. And you, Navio? Um, I got into the same area of study as Winnie, industrial organizational psychology, through a quite an indirect but direct way. I used to be an air cadet in uh, the Royal Canadian Air Cadet Program. Uh, it is often described as it is best kept secret for youth. And uh, it is a program that's designed to develop in youth uh, attributes of citizenship and leadership. And at the time, I didn't have terms for some of the things that we had experienced, but we're often thinking about to attract people to join the program, um, how to think about from us once we had to age out of the program, uh, which we had to leave at around 19 years of age. And so through that path and actually just an aptitude test in high school, I uh, have come to fall in love with this area of psychology. Uh, and specifically how it applies to the workplace. Well, I saw your work in a piece in the Harvard Business Review, and it was pretty interesting, the the topic you covered, but I'm really interested also into how you decided to look at this. Who should get leadership training? The project came about when Winnie and I wanted to better understand how people actually develop when they go through training. 
And earlier I mentioned my background with the cadet program. Um, our study actually uh, was in that setting. And it's a particularly good setting to study leadership development. because People actually have to go through training for a continuous uh, six-week period. Compare, compare that to typical organizational leadership development programs where they might be a couple days, sometimes over the span of a year, say once a quarter, it's just much harder to track development. Uh, and an interesting finding that came out of that research was that some of the people who you might think were the ones who were least likely to benefit from training actually benefited the most. Uh, and that led to the article that you ended up reading in the HBR. Interesting, you know, that you say this, people who need it, don't need it. I often speak to groups about economic topics, future work, and the people in the room are leaders and they tend to be very senior in the organization. It's very unusual to have people who are, I don't say newer, but who are not really, you know, prominent. Now, is that the normal course? Like, do you have an idea of the metric of where the money goes in terms of training? I think given limited resources, typically financial and also time, we have some you know, ideas who we think will either need it the most or benefit the most. Uh, in the example you just mentioned, uh, often senior leaders report that as they progress through their careers, they tend to get most of their development opportunities as they rise through the ranks. I think that makes sense. Their probably mandates are a little bit more complex. The challenge is more nuanced uh, and probably the consequences of not receiving development uh, much more uh, dire than someone who may be a little bit more junior. However, an unintended consequence is that those who probably would benefit the most early on in their career, uh, setting them up for success in the right ways, um, that should come actually way earlier uh, in their career. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think that's quite typical. Uh, people who are high performing, uh, people who are more senior tend to get more of the development opportunities. Yeah, you mentioned the leadership development paradox. Winnie, you know, when you were looking at this, what struck you about the organization of this? Yeah, I think it's very much a story, I think, of of trying to make the right decisions, but inadvertently creating inequity, which I think we see a lot of times in our society, where we really are trying to be careful and thoughtful. But then what ends up happening is that a lot of resources get allocated to a pretty small group of people. Um, but I think the more we understand about leadership is really that leadership goes beyond a formal role in an organization, and that there's really a lot of space and opportunity for people even at, quote unquote, the lower levels of organizations to enact a lot of informal leadership that can nevertheless really benefit the organization and their coworkers. And I think that's what really struck us in terms of how by really trying to be careful about how we allocate leadership opportunities in some ways, um, we're really restricting opportunities, perhaps to people who, if given the opportunity, would be great leaders, but unfortunately are never given the opportunity. It's interesting that you say disparities because we think of income disparities and you know disparities in terms of opportunities in general. But I think companies like to think that within their own buildings, they're giving everybody the same you know opportunity to advance. You just have to to demonstrate this. What makes you think that's not the case? I think it's really what we see. I think there are limitations with how um, you think about in-depth 
or high touch development that can occur. Of course, if you want to deliver, you know, the best type of development experience to a small number of people, well, of course, then you're only going to have so many people who can attend. And so I've seen, especially in larger organizations, they will have sort of a more uh, distributed uh, development model where they have their internal um, uh, self-directed learning programs that employees can, can select and, and sort of choose your own adventure. Uh, however, I think when you leave it in the hands of, of employees to kind of self-select themselves in these programs, what will end up happening is that they don't end up taking a lot of the opportunities that are available to them. And, and so I think that is just sort of the, the reality that we see is, is the people who, quote unquote, don't, you know, or who don't need it as much are the ones who uh, aren't getting the opportunities. And, and it's really an unintended consequence that when he mentioned it's not something an organization intends to do but it's a consequence that comes out uh, naturally based on how they currently distribute their resources uh, and it could be in this instance uh, developmental resources Winnie, do you want to add to that yeah so i think the other thing that that kind of opt-in process also really creates is that i think depending on people's background, not everyone is as comfortable with claiming the mantle of leadership, right? So when you really leave it up to your employees to basically say like, nominate yourself or say that you really wanna you know, do leadership development training, I think for some people that can feel really intimidating or they're not sure you know, if they have the attributes of being a leader. And I think that sometimes can be a real um, unfortunate circumstance because I actually think that research suggests that there is multiple ways to lead. And when we, and some people though think that, you know, oh, you know, I'm not that aggressive, you know, I don't necessarily want to be the loudest voice in the room. And so maybe I don't match what I think, you know, they're looking for in terms of the types of people who would be a good fit for this training program. And I think that's actually unfortunate because that also maybe can create a very homogenous type of leadership within your organization. But we all make, you know, assumptions, right? Companies make assumptions, individuals make assumptions. I love that you give this example about hockey, uh, given that you're in Canada, we're all in Canada here, uh, that, you know, in hockey, you think that all the kids have the same opportunity to succeed, uh, but there's actually things that give some more uh, advantages than others. Want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think colloquially it's been understood as the 40-30-20-10 rule. So in sort of any um, um, group of elite hockey, uh, however sort of cohort, if you look at it within a specific age range, that you'll find 40% of the hockey players uh, born you know, in January and February and then 30% around March to April, and it trickles down to 10% closer to the end of the year, uh, calendar year being December. Uh, and that's just due to an more or less arbitrary uh, cutoff date uh, of the age at which um, a child can be eligible to play hockey. And so you can have an instance where a child who was just born a day after that cutoff, who would be you know, essentially losing out on 12 months of training uh, and playing time and better coaching. And this really starts to create that disparity even at a very young age. And so over time, uh, you have this uh, cumulative advantage um, due to circumstances that were not under your control uh, that could lead to differences in um, performance in, in hockey. 
And, and a video that was quite powerful that I saw on the internet probably came out, you know, within the last 10 years, I believe he was a professor or at least a high school teacher. And he had all his students line up in a row. Uh, and he said, today you're going to race for uh, this $100 bill. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to ask you some question. Uh, if they, you know, apply or do not apply to you, you're going to take steps forward from that starting line. And so he'll ask questions that were, you know, due to socio socioeconomic circumstances that the child had no control over. And really, he was trying to, you know, visually uh, give this example that not everyone has the same starting line. And then, of course, he asked the kids to start their race from these different levels. And of course, you can imagine some kids are going to get to the finish line much quicker. Uh, I think that's the sort of the similar idea with with this um, assumption that we had mentioned in the paper and that you've asked about is people don't start uh, at the same level and they're going to come to you with differing levels of performance and productivity. Uh, and then you continue to reward those differences. Uh, and then you're really going to create the disparity of haves versus haves not. We often think about it quite easily through financial resources, but with this sort of you know knowledge capital, uh, it is going to be a way in which it can either uh, enhance or impede your ability to advance in your careers and then try and make up for some of those differences, uh, be it in uh, financial income as well. And Winnie, this is what you're saying about disparities, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. One of the other things you mentioned is that past, we tend to think that past performance predicts future performance, right? Which sounds kind of reasonable. Now, you think that that's perhaps not entirely true either. So, of course, we think that past performance can be an important indicator of future performance. I think it's basically more of a problem when we think that, you know, we already know how this person's going to do do completely. Um, and the reason for that is when we think about how people are often promoted into leadership, um, often they get promoted into leadership positions in companies because they are a great individual contributor. But actually, once you become a manager, the skills that are required in terms of, of managing people, motivating people, structuring the work, that's often totally different and foreign from what someone was doing in an individual contributor role. And so I think sometimes when we kind of think about what people have done in the past as their track record and just assume that that means they have all the right capabilities to be successful in a more complex, often more interpersonal leadership role, I think that's when sometimes that can lead us astray um, in terms of actually, you know, this is a job that often requires totally different skill sets, maybe one that you have spent very little time developing before. So I'll put this out to either, either of you. Are there examples of companies that have done this well, that, you know, kind of look more broadly? I can't say with, you know, absolute specificity, but I would say that on the whole, especially with organizations that um, are, are in, in the corporate world, they have quite extensive uh, talent reviews. Uh, this is a, a process that would, I think, at a minimum occur once a year. Uh, and they use this as an opportunity to assess this idea of potential. So it's not so much how well you're performing now, uh, but rather how well you might be able to perform in a future role, uh, sometimes in a role that may not uh, exist yet in the organization. Uh, they'll also use that information and corroborate it with current performance. So they, you essentially have these two uh, sets of indicators. Some for how well you're doing now, uh, some for how well you're doing or potentially doing in the future. 
Um, where I think a lot of places do get hung up on is they aren't going through a robust process of assessing what potential is or what it looks like. And, and same thing with performance. Uh, Lynn, I know you had a guest on who actually talked about, uh, I think in a different setting, but around performance management, I think he used the example of Yahoo uh, and that the then CEO essentially sort of paused the performance review process until they could come up with one that was a little bit more robust. Uh, and then that way you can actually really accurately um, uh, assess and characterize people's performance. Unfortunately, most organizations that don't think are very good here, uh, I think many listeners will be uh, very familiar with a five-point rating scale. So you're looking at this maybe once a year uh, and sort of everything that you contributed uh, in the 365 days uh, culminates into a single rating. It's not quite um, descriptive of where someone does well and where some uh, someone doesn't do too well. Uh, so I think a lot of organizations are good in having that process in place. Uh, but some of the more finer tuned, but very critical details of how to actually come about that potential rating or that performance rating, that's where I think it lacks right now. Okay, so you do the assessment and you find some workers are really motivated and they're contributing. And then naturally, you tend to give them the training. But you also say that that might not be the only way to go about it. Winnie, what does that mean that you don't necessarily give the training to the most motivated people? So I think um, if you think about different people's leadership journeys, I think some of the people who are most passionate and really see themselves as leaders, they go out of their way to find opportunities for themselves to develop and exert leadership. You know, even if they, let's say they didn't get corporate training through their organization, they may be um, community volunteers or they may seek out opportunities to practice and engage in leadership because they really already fundamentally see themselves as leaders, right? If they don't get it through one means, they would find a way to get it to another because it's something that they already really strive for. But I think it's really that other group of people who maybe are hesitant or don't see themselves as leader or who are uncertain about their leadership capabilities, who, if you don't give them the opportunity, they may always kind of stagnate there. They may always have a question, you know, or maybe they are actually interested, but they're not confident, right? But without opportunities or access to developing those skills, they'll never gain that confidence, right? That might propel them and then start their own journey in terms of them being more proactive and seeking out leadership opportunities. So I think that's part of what we are really encouraging organizations to think about. And we totally recognize that perhaps the nature or the kind of training might be different for different people at different stages of their leadership development process. But I think giving different people that opportunity to explore, to think about themselves as leaders, to develop some skills, to get some practice, I think can be really valuable as opposed to leaving people in that I'm not sure, I don't know phase for a really extended period of time. Okay, so say you're an organization, you want to make the best use of your people because that's how you get productivity and you get the right people into management roles. How do you start this? You know, what do you have to think about? Do you have to put more money into this? Do you have to survey people? I'll, I'll put it out to both of you. I'll start with you, Navia. I think the first and most important um, and obvious but underutilized um, sort of approach is to really identify clearly what you're trying to develop for. I think there is um, no need to make the case that organizations should develop their people or to think about their talent 
in, in those ways where you're giving them the right experiences and skills to thrive. However, it's it's often a blanket approach. We should develop. Development is very important. But if you don't have a North Star that you're working towards, then you're, in effect, not developing for anything. So having uh, an idea of, you know, what could these jobs look like or where you're starting to see changes in what recruiters are looking for in jobs, you can get a sense, okay, given a certain role, uh, this is how it's sort of um, changing or transforming. Uh, we need these skills. And so then you can at least have that initial idea of what you're trying to develop for. Uh, from there, then, of course, you're looking at um, good financial investment, but also um, uh, time, not only to attend uh, training, but also to implement it. Uh, I often see that you might have one or two people on the team who get sent off to development. And when they come back, what they've learned is not quite well received within the team. And then you're going to, in effect, not use it. So you're going to lose it. Uh, and then finally, I would add that sometimes you might want to have training that takes place at a team level. Um, you know, meaning I have this background in psychology and, and if we take a step away from this particular field into say clinical psychology, often you'll have parents who bring their kids for therapy, but the parents and, and maybe other siblings is also an important part of that system. And you want to see how the entire family unit functions in relation to helping and facilitating, you know, a particular focal individual on their uh, journey of, of, of improvement or development. And so same thing uh, would go with an organization. You can break it down into a team level. Having a group of individuals who work together consistently in, in sort of, quote unquote, the real world might want to consider going through training together as well so they can understand you know, everything that was being taught and how it all comes together in the bigger picture of once they're outside of that training environment. And Winnie, I'll let you add to that. What do you think companies should be thinking of when they're putting together you know, a plan for the next five years, 10 years, and they want to have the right people in place? Yeah, I think fundamentally it's worth thinking about where you're allocating your resources. I, I think that, you know, as we've been talking about in this conversation, um, not only do the most senior people get leadership development, they get often what I would characterize as very expensive leadership development. It's not unusual for a company to invest thousands of dollars to put an executive through, let's say, a very rigorous assessment center where they would be assessed, they would be put in multiple scenarios, they would get very high-level feedback, um, and that costs a lot of a lot of money, right? And although I think that that can be very valuable, I think that um, another way of thinking about allocating your resources maybe is to reach um, a larger number of people earlier on in their career. And that I think that by planting the seeds of leadership development earlier, then these people will be motivated and have opportunities to enact leadership um, as opposed to you know, waiting until the end of people's careers and then investing a huge amount of resources in this small number of people, I think reallocating, thinking about, you know, how can we um, change our approach so that we can get more people some, you know, valuable leadership development opportunities, I think could actually potentially be much more impactful. Um, I think the other thing maybe is also to think about making um, some leadership training mandatory as opposed to making everything so optional um, so that people actually get exposed and understand what this process might involve so that they can make much more informed choices in terms of if they want to go after 
or seek out other leadership development opportunities in the future. There's something to add just on that mandatory um, uh, leadership training. There was some research done a couple of years ago, uh, essentially a meta-analysis, which is uh, a study of studies that aggregates, you know, the research findings from, you know, many research papers uh, on this topic of leadership training. And they actually found that uh, mandatory programs led to some better organizational outcomes, which is sort of counter to what organizational leaders might think, meaning, well, we force people to go and they don't want to attend. It's not going to actually generate any, you know, positive uh, return on investment. And that was one of the variables they looked at. And actually they found that mandatory training programs had a better ROI. So we get, uh, you know, another notch on the side of, you know, getting as many people to go through development programs as possible. And in some instances, maybe um, actually forcing them or at least, you know, really strongly encouraging them to attend uh, doesn't lead to the negative outcomes that leaders might assume uh, uh, can happen. Interesting stuff. Navio Winnie, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Linda. Thanks for having us. Navio Kwok is the Vice President of Research and Marketing at Kilbury, and Winnie Shen is an Associate Professor of Organization Studies at the Schulich School of Business at York University. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Navio and Winnie's work, please check out our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. Now, if you did enjoy this conversation about work and the future of work, please take a moment, leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That's how people find podcasts, and it will really help us continue these discussions about where work is going to go. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future Podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.